Welcome to episode 10 of our Jazz Backstory podcast, part 2 of our topic, Why Jazz? Last week we heard testimonies from eight musicians addressing their overwhelming desire to make a living in a creative art form we call jazz. I'm assigning a subtitle to part 2, Why Jazz, When the Bread is So Bad? A fact summed up in one of the better oxymorons I have heard the rich jazz musician. This particular topic requires placing our jazz vocabulary segment right up front. You have gathered by now that this music has numerous inside terms, some of which are dated now that jazz is a respected art form. In years past, if a musician was offered a gig, whether it was a one-nighter or an extended tour, they typically asked, what's the bread? Or even hipper, What's the taste like? One of the jazz anecdotes that is still passed around concerned the lead trumpeter who was offered a long-term gig with an established big band. When he asked about the weekly bread, the band leader replied, Bean 80. The trumpeter disgusted reply, Bean 80? Man, I got sparrows. Translation, $180 a week, I have children. I rather dig the pre-translation. While it's true this select group of jazz artists have done quite well financially, it has usually gone hand-in-hand with longevity and expanding their skill set beyond just performing. We'll address that topic in depth down the episode road. Let's get to it. Jazz and money. I mean bread. First up, guitarist Billy Bauer, who in 1930, at age 17, was quite pleased with an enticing path to become a rich jazz musician. Can I assume that your father eventually came to terms with your life as a musician? Well, well, he uh, he wanted me to, uh, he wanted me to get a real job. That's what he that as. So I said, yeah, I like what I'm doing. He said, yeah, but you got to get a real job. You're getting too old. I was about 18 or 17. He says, you got you to get a job. He says, come on down to shop with me. So he brought me all the way down to 11th Street, down in New York, where we are. And it was in the summer. And that means I had to take a trolley car to the subway, the subway, and then I had to walk a couple of blocks to the thing. On a hot summer's day, no air conditioning. Mm-hmm. He opened the, the door to get into this big shop. It was Vanity's Press. He opened this door and the ink, the smell of ink hit me and I almost passed out. I said, Pop, I can't make it. <laughs> I, I couldn't I, I couldn't see myself growing. Yeah. So so then I, he kept after me, I, you know, he said, geez, you gotta get something. So one of my friends who was the leader of one of the club day bands, he worked in Celanese. That's a silk, imitation silk, but it was just starting. So he says, they're hiring guys. So then he offered me a job in the underwear department because uh, the the underwear department was new in Celanese. He says, well, you could down there and condense the stock. I I said, I don't know what you mean, condense. He says, well, you know, put all the 
the blues together and the sizes together. It's okay. So I went down there, and it was only a little room. It was just a, like like here, but but uh -huh. that. So I I put everything in order, and I was sitting there. He come by. He says, "What's what? What's the matter? Where are you? Why aren't you working?" I said, "Well, what do you want me to do?" He says, "I told you, come then." I says, "I did." So he comes in, and he looks at. Him, he says, "Hey, you want this job?" He says, "This job pays thirty-five dollars." And that was a lot of money because he was only making about 60, he mm. told me at that time. He says, and it's going to be big, you'll have guys under you. And so you were I, 16? Yeah, 16 or 17. Can you recall what kind of money you were making on those first engagements with this band? Well, well, it's a, a different areas. When I, when I used to, first, when I went out, I was in the days where there was Everything was illegal. There was no liquor. So it was prohibition. Yeah. So everything I went with, uh, even club dates, we, if they served liquor, it was illegal. So the girls used to, we used to have a kitty, you know, and we, we'd have three pieces, like a, a drum, a banjo, and saxophone. That was it. And uh, the girls would pass the band and say, hey, play Melancholy Baby. Give them a tip. So they throw. So one night I come home, and I had twenty-five dollars on my dresser. Oh, I didn't get paid twenty-five dollars. I got paid something like three or four dollars yeah. a night. But if if it was a good night with these girls and there, everybody was drinking. The more the guys, the girls got them drunk, the more. They <laughs> so so my father woke me up. He says, "Where'd you get that money?" Because he was only making about forty-five dollars yeah. a week. Yeah. You know? So I, I told him, I said, that we had a very good night. There was a couple of guys there, and they just kept on giving us tips. So that was my end. We made $75 in tips, you know, that which was a good night. I was the lead. I made $35, seven nights a week, and no hours. You, you got there at 9 o'clock, but uh, if there was people there at 3.30, you just <laughs> kept playing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, seven nights, too. Hmm. Sort underwear for 35 bucks a week or play music for $25 a night. Billy Bauer did the math and continued to do what he loved, eventually alongside Charlie Parker, Benny Goodman, Lee Konitz, and Lenny Tristano. We can assume his father grew to accept his career path. Mr. Bauer is one of the very few interviews that pointed to decent pay as a reason to become a professional musician. More typical are the players that balance the reality of the compensation with the pursuit of the craft, the calling, as Billy Mitchell described it. During our 1990 View interview in Los Angeles, saxophonist Lanny Morgan described the effort required to net $30 with a Maynard Ferguson band of the early 1960s. What was the travel situation like, the road you know, were you, was it a tough grind in those days? Uh, yes. Looking back at it, you forget all those things, you know, yeah. but it was a wonderful experience, but I wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, yeah, because we had, uh, we didn't have a bus, we had station wagons. And the uh, starting salary on that band was 120 a week. I made 135 because I was not only the lead alto player, but played a lot of jazz too. Mm -hmm. And because he'd known me, you know, and so. 135 a week, and 
And he had two station wagons, and then he drove himself. He had a, two Jaguars, a Mark 9, that never ran more than three or four blocks at a time. And uh, that little white XKE, or the predecessor to the XKE, uh -huh. I guess. But uh, uh, I, I wound up driving one of the station wagons, and uh, a friend of mine from Maine, Don Doan, uh, wound up driving, driving the other one. And uh, it, it, well, you can imagine if you know you leave, you have a one-nighter in Chicago. I just found a pay receipt for this the other night. It was for twenty-three dollars and sixty-five cents, a one-nighter in Chicago. Now, out of that, tax was taken, so you get about nineteen dollars. Out of that, you have to pay uh, uh, for your own lodging and for food. So we used to stay at the Croydon Hotel in Chicago. That was like two fifty a night. Another fifty cents if you wanted a black and white TV. Uh, and say another six dollars for food, maybe. So in other words, you're coming home with eleven dollars, eleven, eleven fifty. So I took the driving job because we got one cent a mile. When our Chicago is nine hundred and nine hundred and sixty miles, I think it is. So I would come home with an extra eighteen, nineteen, a little over nineteen dollars plus my eleven would be thirty bucks. I would have. See. Yeah. And, Gee, that uh, was like an extra night of work. That's right. <laughs> we, when I joined that band, we, we, uh, we rehearsed that day, the day I got back there, uh, had a, and the next day we opened at Birdland. And we opened for some reason, it seems like we played there for three weeks. Birdland usually booked people for uh, two weeks, but this was three weeks. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was opposite uh, Art Blakey, uh, the band with uh, Wayne Shorter and Lee Morgan and... Uh, um, Curtis Fuller. Curtis Fuller, sounds right. Uh, good band. And uh, then we went right away. We had one day off and we went to the Brooklyn Paramount and we played there opposite the Jazz Tet, newly formed Jazz Tet, Art Farmer and Benny Golson. Benny Golson. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also, um, oh, another hot, King Curtis was on there. Do you remember him? King Curtis was on that band? King, no, not on the band, but he, oh, he was there. Act. Yeah. I don't know if Jack McDuff was there or not, but th okay. I think they were together at that time. And that was another good show. That was for 10 days. And then we had uh, about uh, four gigs on the road, uh, Pennsylvania and, uh, uh, yeah, around Philly, that area. And then, and I thought, this is wonderful. I'm, you know, what is that, like 135 times, uh, times five almost. I'm, I'm rolling. I was paying $155 a week for a, a place in, uh, at 85th and Broadway in Manhattan. And... Uh, I thought, this, you know, I've died and gone to heaven. Well, then we didn't work for a month and a half, see, and, and nobody was on no retainer. Yeah, no nobody was on a retainer. Uh, everything was prorated when we did work. So uh, that, the reality set in there because uh, then I, I really went from, uh, from wealthy to uh, poor in, uh, in about five weeks. The music bug has a way of rearranging priorities, and musicians developed a talent for avoiding issues regarding monetary compensation. At some point, it probably occurred to Lanny to do the math and calculate his hourly taste for that one-nighter in Chicago. But I'm guessing he decided it was better not to know. My first significant paying gig occurred while I was in high school, New Year's Eve 1968, a four-hour engagement with a local Ukrainian-American polka band. I made $30, just short of a third of a bean. And I, like Lanny Morgan, was in heaven. 
16 years later, I was traveling and performing five to six nights a week with a progressive rock band making $200 a week. Assuming no PA gear needed replacing or the truck tires held out. I definitely avoided the math. Some things never change. From a recent session, saxman Jerry Berganzi speaks about supporting the gig habit. When I was 12, a friend of mine came over to my house, and his father was a trumpet player, and he had a Miles record with Coltrane on it, and a Sonny Rollins record, and an Art Blakey record with Wayne Shorter on it. I said, oh my goodness. So that's when I really got the bug. Don't you think it's um, necessary to have that serious bug to go into jazz these days? Yeah, I do. And you can even have a bug. But if you have other bugs that, you know, so uh, a friend of mine, Adam Nussbaum, always says, you know, there's only one reason you should get into jazz because you can't help it. There's not that. That's just it. Because if you have choices, take the other choice. <laughs> I always tell people, you got to have a, uh, a way to support your, especially in these days, your, I'll call it a jazz habit, but it could be music habit. Uh, a way to support yourself, you know, because the gigs are fewer. They don't pay. They pay the same they that they paid forty years ago, and uh, you used to be able to make a living, not a great living, but pl playing. Uh, but today, it's next to impossible. The romanticized image of the struggling yet devoted jazz artist can be found in any genre of the music, from Chicago jazz to the avant-garde. The otherworldly Sun Ra led his orchestra, a gathering of forward-thinking musicians who followed their leader's unique vision to unexplored destinations. Sun Ra and his acolytes clearly had a commitment that was not based on a weekly salary. Saxophonist Marshall Allen joined the newly formed orchestra in 1958 and has led the group since the passing of Sun Ra in 1993. At age 98, Marshall continues to lead the ensemble and still waits for the topic under discussion. In our December 2021 interview, he recalled a conversation early on with Sun Ra, dating back 65 years. You were writing about, about the time that you were getting to know Sun Ra and you wanted to get going and he kept talking about the Bible and Egyptian mythology. And then he said, we're going to play this music for the 21st century. And you said, I got to wait that long? Yeah, with no pay or half pay. Dog, I mean, I had to wait the 21st century to well, make some money. <laughs> well, now you're in the 21st century. You've been doing it for 21 Still years. Still ain't made no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that least I, the music, I got the music, I put that out there. All right. I did something good, but the money ain't come yet. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is what musicians call paying dues. Now, it's not my intention to create the impression that the jazz life is a constant uphill struggle where success is avoiding bankruptcy. 
A rich jazz musician may be a rare bird, but there are numerous artists who manage to make a living wage by doing what they love. Trumpeter John Eric Kelso and pianist Bill Sharlop come to mind. Here's what they had to say. Yeah, sometimes I think we were born in the wrong era, you know. Well, you should say that. I felt that way myself. Yeah. Today, in, in the market, being a, a jazz musician, mm -hmm. is it a, I want to get too personal, is it a decent way to make a living? Is it, is it hard? It's, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say it is, it is not an easy way to, to make a living. It's, uh, but it, again, on the other hand, it's, it's, I'm really happy and fortunate and pleased to be doing what I've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I make a living. I, I do okay. It's, yeah. it's, let's say this. It's not an easy way to get rich. I mean, that's, it's, you know, I, I didn't get into music to become you know, rich. So. Right. But I do okay. I've always, I've always managed to be able to be a, a full-time musician and pay my bills and, and uh, you know, I do, I do okay. Mm -hmm. But it's, there's only a select few really that do, you know, that are able to do that compared to the musicians that just decide, well, okay, I'll just do this on the side and have a, a day gig, as they say, you know. When we meet again uh, down the line somewhere, can you envision things that will hopefully happen in your career for you? Well, I remember people asking me even 10 years ago, what is it that you want to do? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a musician. I remember something Dizzy Gillespie said, or we should all get down on our knees and thank God we're musicians. And uh -huh. I feel that way. I feel very blessed to have a life of this. And it's not uh, just about having a career in music. Someone said something funny. You can make literally hundreds of dollars in this business. <laughs> Listen, you're not going to be a millionaire. It's... More than likely, you may have a nice middle-class income at some point if you're uh -huh. busy, but it's not about that. Yeah. It's about the riches that you have by playing music, the joy that you get of being able to express yourself on a very high and profound level at your instrument, just for yourself or to give to other people. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, what, a, what other career do you get to travel this way, see the world, get to know there are no generation gaps, there are no racial gaps. Yeah. You know, I know people, and I, I'm close with people of all generations and races. I'm, I hate that word race anyway. Yeah. It's only the human race. But I race. know what you mean. Um, right. But all different backgrounds. Right. And uh, that's a wonderful life. So I wouldn't pass that up. John Eric Kelso keeps classic jazz alive with his group the Ear Regulars, who perform at the Ear Inn regularly in New York City. <laughs> I made that in one pass. Bill Sharlop continues to be an in-demand soloist and accompanist while directing the vibrant jazz program at William Patterson University. Here's a digression. Do you recall the Jack Nicholson scene in As Good As It Gets, the one where he serenades that miniature dog, hoping a little dinner music will inspire him to eat? 
The tune was, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. I thought of it while reading the transcript of our session with the late pianist Ellis Marsalis, native of New Orleans and patriarch of the musical Marsalis family. Ellis was interviewed during the Jazz Education Network 2020 conference, less than three months before his passing. I believe his lifelong attitude made his career possible. We'll follow Ellis with some wisdom from another pianist, Norman Simmons, a prized accompanist for two iconic vocalists, Carmen McRae and Joe Williams. Well, just to wrap up here, if um, let's suppose we went down in the lobby and we sat down for a cup of coffee and one of the hundreds of young musicians that are here at this convention happened to join us and said, Mr. Marcellus, I really want to make a career in jazz. Do you have one piece of advice for me? Only if he has to. Mm. I'll borrow that phrase. <laughs> from, <laughs> there was a show on TV which uh, featured actors. I can't remember the host's name. And it was like a class, and the, and the actor would, would, the guest would come on, and he'd talk about his career to a class of would-be actors. And at one point, one of the people, that, one of the students said, uh, I really like acting. And I was wondering, you know, do you think I should continue being an actor? That's what he told him. He said, only if you have to. And it's a strange way. Not everybody would really understand that. <laughs> you know. But I realized that that was how, pretty much how I lived my life. That was something that I had to do. It wasn't about, well, man, you got six sons, one who's autistic, who's still living with me now, and, you know, all these miles to feed. <laughs> How you gonna do that? But I, I, I never developed a defeatist attitude about it. I always figured that somehow it would work out. I mean, I just believe that. Now, that can be very naive. In some cases, it might be very stupid. I don't know. But I really believe that somehow it was going to work out. And it looks like it did to me. <laughs> Well, at my age, if it didn't, it's too late to worry about it now. <laughs> Was there a point, um, you're growing up in Chicago, where you started to feel that you had the confidence that you could actually make a living at this, in this business? Well, that's an interesting concept because I've always looked at it in a different way. 
I guess you might say in the artistic sense that I didn't consider how I want to make a living. I just considered how I want to live. So, and uh, that decision was made when I was in maybe my second year in high school. But anyway, we had a course in careers, and I decided, I looked at it and said, well, now, if I decide to be an artist, there's going to be someone over me. If Maybe I'm going to be like painting pictures and wait until I'm dead before I get any recognition from them, or I'm going to work in a situation where someone's going to be telling me what to do. I decided, you know, and being who I was, you know, uh, in the black community, I said democracy was mostly represented in the music. This is where individuals accepted each other on another level other than the way the rest of society did. And I decided this is where I wanted to be in that situation. You know, so it was how I wanted to live my life regardless of how much I was going to make. Of course, in those days, making money, uh, my goodness, when I left Carmen, for instance, which was like 1970, to show you, I had an apartment in the Bronx with three big rooms in it, and my rent was only $91 when I left at $91 a month. Wow. You know? And uh, would you would you talk to Joe, and he talked about places where you you lived, and your rent was, what, $15, $15 a month or something like that. You know what I mean? So the times were different. So you didn't feel this uh, money wasn't that dominant entity that it is today. Mm. You know, it just wasn't there. Uh, the people who had money, they were some different other people. Most of all the rest of us were kind of poor. And so there was a different kind of community with everybody else on this same level of uh, working hard, resting hard, and playing hard. I really believed that somehow it was going to work out. Thank you, Ellis. It was how I wanted to live my life, regardless of how much I was going to make. And thank you, Norman Simmons. Have you noticed that jazz people are very quotable? For the aspiring musicians who may be listening, or the parents of children who have the jazz bug, these interview excerpts may sound bleak, but they are only realistic. A life and career in any of the arts is a challenge, and the place one arrives at in their chosen field is often significantly left or right of the original target. But the path getting there is part of the ride, and I can say this from experience. Of all the artistic disciplines, music offers the most options. An aspiring jazz player can land gigs and make money for the rent in numerous related situations. Funk bands, studio work, club dates and casuals, or busking in the subway may not satisfy the jazz bug, but at least they provide a setting to blow your horn. If these gigs are a serious drag, the motivation they provide to make them unnecessary makes them worthwhile. I know for a fact that every musician we have heard so far in this podcast paid those dues, and it paid off. You can view the full interviews on the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel and find our Jazz Backstory podcast at hamilton.edu or at your favorite podcast provider. 
Next week, we focus on the concept of swing, as in, it don't mean a thing if you ain't got it. We'll close this episode with a riff on jazz similar to Flip Phillips' tribute from episode 9, this time from Keith Ingham, a pianist who definitely got the bug and left his home and country to become part of the jazz scene in America. See you on the flip side. Are there any counterparts of American musicians who've gone over to England and learned as much about your music as you have about... Well, there's not much I could say. You know, what do you mean? <laughs> British music, I mean, well, we never had anything as wonderful as jazz. You see, I think it comes from a, you know, a melting pot society where you've got all these different strains coming together, you know. This yeah. is the whole point. You know, you had Italians here, so you have this wonderful lyric quality. You have, you know, Afro-Americans, as they call now, you know, but you have that rhythmic thing maybe they brought, you know, that, that looseness and that sense of swing. You had the Germans here, you know, so you have the correctness of intonation and things like that. You have a whole melting pot, and they all brought their music. When you had the Russians with all that minor key, soul, <laughs> stuff, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's wonderful. I mean, Gershwin is Russian, but also very Jewish, and that kind of sad, soulful feeling that's in his music is, I think, more Jewish than Russian, you know, mm. or American. I mean, it's just Porky and Bess could almost be a Jewish opera rather than a black opera, you know, some of that stuff. It's yeah. so, you know, it's wonderful. Well. But it's, you know, it's the melting pot that America is that made American music. That's what it is. I mean, there's nowhere else, nothing like it, is uh -huh. there? You know, there's nothing like it in the world. It, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. Don't lose it because it's your great con contribution to world culture. I mean, it's your Beethoven, your Haydn, your Schubert, your Debussy, your Ravel, your Elgar, your Henry Purcell, or whatever you want to call it, your Rachmaninoffs, your Stravinsky's. Yeah. It's all there. It's Duke Ellington, it's Fats Waller, it's Henry Red Allen, it's Bix, it's uh, Eddie Lang, it's Joe Venuti. It's up there. And God bless it. You know. Oh, God. We're we lucky got, to we be. we got to get you on Letterman. <laughs> Ha ha ha!